For the rest of this century, the reality of what transpires will take place within two extreme poles. And those extremes are, on one hand, sufficient human self-limitation, and on the other extreme is human self-annihilation. Somewhere between those two poles is where we'll really come out. And the closer we can come to sufficient self-limitation, the less pain and anguish we'll actually have to endure. Welcome to Power, Limits and Prospects for Human Survival. In this series, we explore the hidden driver behind the crises that are upending societies and disrupting the life support systems of the planet. That hidden driver is power, our pursuit of it, our overuse of it, and our abuse of it. I'm your host, Melody Travers-Allison. And I'm Rob Dietz, your co-pilot and program director at Post Carbon Institute. Join us as we explore power and why giving it up just might save us. Last episode, we discussed optimum power and the idea that we need to find balance in how much power we use. It's a balance between meeting human needs and maintaining healthy living conditions on planet Earth. In this concluding episode, we're looking at how to do that. That is how to live the good life while powering down, especially in those places where we're overconsuming energy and materials. I know, Melody, that you and Richard are going to have a lot to discuss about how to live the good life while powering down. And as we were approaching this episode, I knew that you and I needed to wrap up all these conversations that we've been having on on big topics, on power, on energy, these sort of philosophical ideas, the Mm -hmm. stories that we've shared, uh, and trying to figure out uh, something about how people interact with each other and with our environment. And I thought maybe instead of sort of a, a prelude to what you and Richard are talking about, we could we could shake things up a little bit. And uh, my idea is that maybe I could play the host and interview you. Oh, okay. Uh- well, you, you know, I... I thought you might be a little hesitant, so uh, <laughs> let me just let me give you the reason, okay? I feel like you've been on this journey, and it's really been a journey to answer a question that you've posed to our listeners each time, and that that question you've you've been asking is, "Are you ready to confront power?" And I think it would be interesting to hear your thoughts on what that's meant. So, are, are you game for this? I've only got a couple questions. I'm 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 game. Okay, so. Here's the first question. Everybody who's thinking about humanity's predicament uh, when it comes to overshoot and the limits to growth and and all of the symptoms that come along with that, like global warming and biodiversity loss and inequality, everyone starts at a different place with a different foundation of knowledge. And I know that you're not new to studying sustainability issues, but I also know that prior to this deep dive with Richard and Post Carbon Institute, that that along the way in doing that, you've you've found this examination of power to be uh, what dare I say it powerful. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk about how your worldview has changed as you've confronted power and seen it as the hidden driver behind all these crises that we're facing in the 21st century. That's a big question, Rob. Um, (laughs) You mentioned the symptoms, and I've been seeing the symptoms. They're they're hard to miss at this point. But even having engaged in these topics, I I still felt like I lacked a really cohesive framework to work from. And starting from when I was a kid, I. I had this sense that something is terribly wrong. Um, I hated highways and strip malls, and I would ask my mom, like, why would humans make something so ugly? Yeah. And I think I intuited that a place that doesn't have trees and is impoverished, that those are connected some way, but but I, I just didn't know how to connect them all. And... So this epiphany that really Richard shared through this book that it's power and our overuse of it is really this through line that 
that can connect all of these seemingly disparate problems has been really helpful for me as this overarching framework. And I've been thinking about power as this magnet that's just like pulling more and more into it, that there's this this accumulative aspect to it. And so whether we're talking about an invasive species or corporate overreach, it it seems like the cycle is the same, that there's just this extraction of resources and that these entities multiply and just homogenize everything. And there's just no room for for biodiversity and human diversity in this world where where power is just becoming more and more concentrated. So yeah, every episode I've been asking, are you ready to confront power? And of course, I've been really asking myself that as well. And with anything big, you just have to like wake up every day and be like, okay, how am I going to try to tackle that? And so putting my time and energy and creativity into a project like this has been one way that I've been able to do that. And that has really spilled into other aspects of my life with making my home more ecologically friendly and getting out of my private sphere home and into my community. Um, And so that's manifested in ways of like getting involved in local community organizations and creek cleanups and campaigning for better pedestrian infrastructure in my area. Wow, that's uh, really striking, actually, to hear this uh, developing, how one step leads to another. I, I really appreciate that you're taking this very activist approach and, you know, being a, a doer in your community. Uh, that's, I think, exactly what's needed. And a really, uh, again, sorry to use the word again, but a, a powerful way to confront power. So, uh, yeah, I really appreciate that. One of the things that, uh, and this is my second question, one of the things that I notice is that when someone gets a new worldview or an orientation, it ironically can often be disorienting, <laughs> at least for a while. So as I mentioned, you ask that question every time about confronting power, but you also issue a warning in every single episode. And you say, beware, <laughs> you know, use that very strong word, beware, dear listener, uh, you cannot unsee humanity knocking hard against the limits to growth on this finite planet. So you're suggesting, you know, once you start thinking about power in the way that you have, and once you start delving into this worldview, you're you're in it. You're going down the rabbit hole. So I'm wondering how you are dealing with the weight of knowledge that you've absorbed about power and humanity's predicament. It's a challenge not to burn out on these issues. Anybody who works in in the nonprofit sector especially has to deal with that. And yeah, that is a warning. Sometimes I feel like I I put beer goggles on, but they're power goggles and I'm just like seeing everything in terms of the energy needed to produce and transport, dispose of all these items. And yeah, it it can be it can be totally overwhelming. However, Overwhelm is also a, a tactic by powerful people. I think that's why the news is um, so entrenched in our society. It's a lot easier to control people or disempower people when they're afraid all the time. And you guys have a, an episode about that on terror management theory in Crazy Town. That's really good. So in that way, I mean, I really, I, I try to engage in some practices every day or when I can to write or meditate or exercise and talk with friends and and work on not getting overwhelmed by everything because that is so disempowering. Um, the other thing that I found that really helps me is engaging in these topics intellectually, having a big picture intellectually, but then looking at really small things that I can do that are possible. You know, I'm I'm one in eight billion people now. So <laughs> living within the scale that I'm that I'm in. And and that means 
experimenting. That means initiating practices and and hoping that they become these reinforcing feedback loops that we've talked about. One example, my husband and I started a worm compost about five years ago because where we lived, there was no city compost. And I had just moved from Germany where that's part of the culture there. And um, our roommates let us set up this worm bin, but definitely thought it was super weird, super weird. (laughs) And, you know, we just experimented with it. I don't, I don't know if you've had a worm bin, but they can, they can smell really bad and then they're weird and they're imbalanced and we had a worm apocalypse. And so we went through all of these things, you know, experimenting and failing. And I, I think that's part of experimenting. And then I was telling people about it and they were engaged in that. And I was like, you know what? Let me do a little workshop. And so I did ones for my friends and their friends. And and so we got to diversify a little bit. And so next time we had a worm apocalypse, I could get some worms from, from somebody that I had given, you know, a generation to. So I found that experimenting and then sharing what I've learned really helped build out community and really normalize that action, right? Like it was so quirky and weird. And then it became like, oh, I know a lot of people with worm bins now. Like that's totally normal. That was just like one small thing that then was a habit that I, that we could stack with other habits. And that looked like helping each other plant fruit trees and develop our vegetable gardens and invest in the local economy through getting food through the CSA. And in doing that, I feel like it's just really important to do things which are within your sphere of influence, but keeping that big picture in mind, keeping that sort of North Star goal, that orientation, and not just like patting yourself on the back if you like use reusable bags at the grocery store and you're like, cool, I'm done, I'm saving the planet. Um, (laughs) It's about working on that true shift in orientation, which I think build on themselves and choices can cascade into into a different way of life. And my way of life has changed a lot. And then of course the the hope is that you start small and and try to build out and help more biodiversity flourish and more human diversity flourish within your community and beyond. Yeah. Well thanks Melody for for sharing that and and really for going on this journey and in the process leading so many others of us on the journey. I really appreciate it and and actually profoundly positive as far as I'm concerned. Thank you so much, Rob. Richard. Hey, Melody. How are you doing today? Uh, cool. <laughs> Last time we spoke, we in California here were in an epic heat wave. I'm glad to say it's more comfortable now, for now anyway. Well, I'm glad that you are physically feeling better <laughs> in your environment. This is our last episode, so I hope you're ready for our last discussion of this series. Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. In the last chapter of your book, Power, you say, quote, forecasting the future is a fool's game. And I don't think we're fools, so we are not going to try to do any soothsaying, but I still think we have to do something. We can't just sit here and watch the world literally burn. So I want to talk to you about ways we can prepare for really any possible future and really focus on what the big picture is here and what we can say about the future with some assurance. Well, the one thing we can say with great assurance is the future is where we'll spend the rest of our lives. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I I think we could do a little bit better than that. We can explore some of the likely sorts of cause and effect chains and the feedback Mm. loops that are already visible and that are likely to determine events on on a broad scale. And from what we've talked about so far, I think we can conclude that 
this picture of the future that is broadly talked about where, you know, we continue economic growth forever and ever. We colonize Mars. You know, we live in a, a Star Trek world. These are daydreams. For the rest of this century, the reality of what transpires will take place within two extreme poles, somewhere in the middle. And those extremes are, on one hand, sufficient human self-limitation, and on the other extreme is human self-annihilation. Somewhere between those two poles is, is where we'll really come out. And the closer we can come to sufficient self-limitation, the less pain and anguish we'll actually have to endure. And the better the outcome for, not only for the, for the next generation, but for the generations after that. So what does self-sufficient or sufficient collective self-limitation look like? Well, um, (laughs) it's going to be an almost complete rethinking of how society works, because right now, you know, we are living at the height of the period of greatest population numbers and per capita consumption in all of human history, and that's at an unsustainable level. So somehow all of society's structures and aspirations are going to have to be reoriented from continued growth and increased per capita consumption toward other goals, away from, you know, profit and toward happiness and regeneration And that means changing our relationship with power from controlling our environment in ever deeper and stronger ways to controlling ourselves and from seeking to control other people, you know, whether it's through uh, social media or, or, uh, you know, financially in various ways, to finding ways to cooperate with one another. So this is, this is a fundamental shift of how society works. And we can get granular about that, but but I think it's important to start with that, you know, that broad scale overview. Absolutely. I was looking back at one of Hannah Arendt's books recently, and I came across this passage where she describes power. And she says, power is actualized only where word and deed have not parted company. Hmm where words are not empty and deeds not brutal, where words are not used to veil intentions, but to disclose realities, and deeds are not used to violate and destroy, but to establish relations and create new realities. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you for that. She's a beautiful writer. And I thought, that felt really inspiring as a way of, of thinking about power in a, in a really tangible way. Mm-hmm. We've been speaking about power, and that's powerful, but we also need to act. And so last episode, we established that we can self-limit, right? Now, what do we need to limit? What do we need to do? Yeah, yeah. Well, population is one thing, and that's going to require a shift in in cultural attitudes and religious attitudes. You know, we have to take into account the sense of our environment's carrying capacity for people. And we haven't done that in recent decades. People in indigenous societies did they understood that if population was growing, that might not be a good thing mm-hmm. because it, it might mean hunger on the horizon because the, the environment could only supply so much. Right. With fossil fuels, we got out of that habit. We developed this attitude that regardless of how much the population grows, we can always just put more fertilizer in the ground and grow more food and, and everything will be fine. So we have to take some of those indigenous attitudes toward the environment and its limits and Mm -hmm. and recover some of those attitudes. Uh, Resource extraction. You know, again, we've gotten used to this idea that we can just keep 
extracting renewable resources at whatever rate and non-renewable resources that will they'll always be there we've been fooling ourselves and waste dumping similarly the environment can only absorb so much energy usage land use and then the whole question of of inequality economic inequality social inequality as we saw last couple of discussions we've had you know when when those grow then society becomes more and more unstable. So we need ways of not just reducing inequality now, but also making sure that inequality doesn't just bounce back in the future. Um, something we haven't talked about is armaments. You know, that right. uh, weapons are a form of social power. It's one of the fundamental tools of social power. And so... <laughs> We're armed to the teeth these days in the U.S. almost, you know, literally with, with so many guns around. Well, what we're talking about is not just gun control, but all kinds of armaments, including, of course, nuclear weapons, just reducing those to the point where the weapons we need are completely inconsequential and relatively harmless. We've made efforts along all of these lines in, in the last decades but nowhere near what's going to be required if we're going to get through this this century. You mentioned population and inequality and energy, all of these things that were contributing factors in the development of humanity as this global superorganism. Yeah. And I was wondering if if this superorganism can survive degrowth. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Because, you know, the, the superorganism has the consciousness of an amoeba, you know, it, it really just wants to grow. And that's partly because it's only been around for a few decades, you know, uh -huh. global trade and global communications, really just since maybe the 1960s and 70s. I think we could hope that in the future, it matures. But it will have to do that really, really fast. I mean, you know, we have some efforts underway globally to try to do that, like the United Nations and the conferences where everyone gets together once a year to talk about climate change and, and countries make their promises to reduce carbon emissions and so oh, on. Yeah, I feel like I've heard a lot of promises. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's an effort, you know, to to help the the superorganism, uh, you know, wake up and mature. But there's a lot of evidence that that's that's not really happening at sufficient speed and scale. So if it doesn't, then then the superorganism is is basically going to disintegrate. Yeah, I'm thinking about a previous episode where we talked about women's rights and human rights in general, the end of slavery, a lot of these, these really wonderful things that came along the way with, with this super organism with this explosion of energy. And yeah, that's a scary prospect to me to think about. Um, Some of those good things going away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so with that in mind, don't we need power to actually make these changes? Do we fight power with power? What do we do, Richard? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, the, the good things that we've achieved, having all of this surplus energy available, you know, like women's liberation and so on, and we need to fight to defend those things as circumstances change. And that will require power. And it, that's a paradox, of course, because social power that's based on, you know, hierarchical control of other people always brings with it social problems of various kinds, social inequality. Yeah. So we need to fight vertical power with horizontal power. This is not a new idea. <laughs> uh, there, are, there are whole social philosophies that have been based on, on this kind of thinking. And it's been going on for, for some time, organizing movements from labor unions to indigenous people's movements. The thing is, that has to scale up. That kind of horizontal power has to become so pervasive, so organized, 
that it can successfully challenge the vertical power of extreme wealth and, in some cases, fascistic national governments. Yeah. Have you seen that movie, Ants, where they're giving all their grains to the grasshoppers <laughs> and then the, the lead guy, really sweet guy, but he's always messing things up and all of the stock that was collected for the grasshoppers falls into the water and the grasshoppers come and then the final stage, they band arm in arm together and drive away the grasshoppers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's the basic idea. I mean, it's, <laughs> right. it's got it's to go from fairy tale to reality somehow. Yeah, so some of those ways of lessening inequality, though, I mean, again, you were talking about expanding the commons. Right. Yeah, basically, in, in some ways, we're to- what we're talking about is, is running recent history in reverse. Hmm. You know, what we've done in recent history is to monetize everything. Yeah. So that stuff we used to do just spontaneously together, grandmothers for their grandchildren and neighbors for for neighbors, hmm. all of that stuff has become, you know, you're paying somebody else to do it. And that increases the GDP, right? It's, it, hmm. uh, it makes for economic growth, but it means that our relationships become more abstracted and less personal. And it, it doesn't make our quality of life better. In fact, it does just the reverse. So, you know, we have to, like you say, expand the commons rather than, rather than privatizing everything. And one way we could do that is just stop focusing on GDP and, and use different measures of how we're doing economically, like gross national happiness, hmm. you know, which uh, the government of Bhutan has been doing for, for years. We've got to take money away from the billionaires, you know, a financial transactions tax would, would help with that, but also a, a hefty wealth tax. And just find ways to make money less of an important feature in people's daily existence so that we're building bonds of trust and mutual aid that don't depend on, you know, dollars. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, this goes back to our money episode of of this really smart way of controlling people, right? Because it doesn't look like a person. It's just, I've got to make money. You can get me to do things through money. And sometimes it's great. You pay a a therapist so that, you know, they don't have to take the side of your mom or your, you know, partner or whatever. (laughs) And then, you know, you end the conversation and that is the end of that transaction. There can be times in life where that is useful. But we've started doing that with everything. Another element of that has been protecting ecosystems and things like that have become a monetary thing as well. Yeah. So we need to change our incentives, our societal incentives, so that they're not always just monetary incentives, which they all too often are now. And as long as they're purely monetary incentives then we get trapped into making decisions that are, in the end, lose-lose decisions instead of win-win decisions. Because when the environment collapses, everybody loses. There's another element that you talked about in, in the last chapter, which talks about healing some of the past grievances. And especially living in the U.S., I think that there is a lack of true acknowledgement of genocide, of enslavement, of the persistent racist policies that have created really unequal generational wealth. So I, I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, you know, we're going to have to say I'm sorry, <laughs> but but the apology has to be backed up with something, hmm. and that's going to mean different things in in different cases. Certainly for indigenous people, they they get left out of the discussion I think all too often, and they've in many ways suffered really the brunt of land grabs and forcing them to live in the worst places and then giving them the you know the worst options economically and socially whereas in fact indigenous people in their traditions have the solutions for so many of our our difficulties social as well as environmental 
So we need to be listening to these people. And by that, I don't mean cultural appropriation and, you know, wearing Indian headdresses and right. <laughs> that kinds of things, but putting them in positions where they are actually advising what we do in terms of ecosystem management and so on. The fact that the U.S. now has a, a leader of the Department of Interior who's an indigenous person is a good first step along those lines. But I think that's just an, an example of, of the kind of thing that needs to happen on a, a much, much broader basis. Yeah, I could go on. I mean, with African-American culture, as a musician, I'm just absolutely floored by the, the cultural contribution mm. of African-Americans in jazz and blues and ragtime and r and B. I I mean, basically... If you took away African Americans, we would have no culture worth <laughs> totally. paying attention to in this country. Totally. And yet, you know, what do they get for it? You know, reading the lives of people like uh, Louis Armstrong and Fats Waller and all these people who are making just immense cultural contributions and just getting stomped on again and again. Oh, it makes me ashamed. So, so. That needs to be redressed. There, there needs to be a big apology, and maybe that means reparations mm. of some kind. But that's that's a big subject, and uh, uh, it's a very uncomfortable subject for 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 most white people to to uh, to even think about. Yeah, I read an amazing book several years ago called "Between the World and Me." And it was really the first time that I had read a book where they were like, you're white, you have to claim being white, because people that aren't white, <laughs> don't get to choose, you know, growing up in the colorblind world of like, oh, right. I don't think of myself in terms of race. I didn't even know what a privileged position that was until I read that book. Just acknowledging what's happened and happening and the structures that are in place, I think that that can go a long way and there's so much more to do. But if we're going to come together and and use our power together, then we have to do some of this this healing together as well. And a big part of it is old versus young. I'm really concerned that over the course of this coming century, you know, young people are going to learn to resent older people hmm. really, really deeply. Because people of my generation and the generation after, you know, Gen X, mm -hmm. we have had the most material advantages of any generation in all of human history. And what did we do with it? We used all the resources, polluted the environment, and, and we've left it all for the next generation to clean up. What a legacy that is. We owe... <laughs> Folks in your generation, a lot. We owe you opportunities to have a life. Okay. I want to stay positive here. Yeah. Because I want, for myself and for all of our listeners, I want to leave feeling really empowered so that instead of falling into that pessimism or despair that we push toward that more positive future of collective self-restraint. And so how far on that path do we have to go towards self-restraint? Yeah, well, that's, that's a question that can't be answered in really specific terms. Like, okay, uh, an obvious one would be how many people can the earth support over the long term? What's a sustainable human population? Nobody knows because there are too many variables. Because, I mean, the obvious variable is at what level of amenity, mm. you know, are we yeah. talking about an industrial way of life where everybody has a refrigerator and a car? Or are we talking about a hunter-gatherer way of life? Or, or what? So... There have been some numbers tossed out, like somewhere between a billion and three billion. And, and some people even say fewer than that, like in uh, 100 million, 500 million. Again, nobody knows. All we can say for sure is we're way over <laughs> that number now. So we know the direction we have to go. Mm -hmm. The same thing with per capita consumption. 
I mean, right now, per capita consumption in many countries, industrial countries like the U.S., is just way over. And we, we know that from organizations like the Global Footprint Network that, that calculate how much the Earth can sustainably provide and then how much we're using and compare the two numbers. And if the whole world lived like people in North America, you know, we'd need four or five Earths. Yeah. You know, obviously, we don't have four or five Earths. We do that by some of us consuming a lot more than others. And, and then by stealing from future generations, you know, using up Earth's biocapacity that will not be available to, to children and grandchildren. So we know we have to reduce per capita consumption, but we have to do it fairly. So it's the people who are consuming the most who are going to have to give up the most. Right. And then we have to keep our eye on the impacts. This is the key. You know, you have to have a dashboard and you have to be seeing, well, are the impacts diminishing and are they diminishing enough, quickly enough in order to avert, you know, climate catastrophe and, and the disappearance of wild nature? And, or do we have to do a little more? So that's the only way to answer that question, not with hard numbers, but with, you know, basic direction and, and then, you know, what do we pay attention to? I think there's this kind of misleading holy grail out there, too, that we can just decouple economic growth from increased consumption of raw materials that, you know, now we have technology and the internet and we can all wear haptic suits oh. and efficiency will take us all the way towards decoupling growth from resource depletion. Yeah, right. Well, economic growth hasn't been decoupled from increased consumption so far. I mean, we, there was a lot of talk about the service economy taking over from the industrial economy. But what actually happened was the service economy just hopped on the back of the industrial economy and they both continued growing. We offshored some of that industrial economy to places like China. But globally, if you look at global materials use and energy usage, and economic growth, rather than just looking at it within the borders of a country like the United States, mm -hmm. then energy usage is still tightly coupled to economic growth. So we have to get off of economic growth, as we've talked about already. There's a lot of things that we can do that we'll have to research and think about ways of, of organizing work and production and, and livelihoods that that entails scaling back cooperatively. Which everyone will hate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. um. I, I know, it's true. You know, uh, economists will bristle at the very idea, you know, yeah. of, of doing away with GDP because that's that's been their bread and butter for decades. And the idea of cutting back on consumption well, you know, that's how we create jobs. That's how we make profits. That's how we make returns on investment for, for our investors. So that's why reorienting this whole machine is going to require more than just, you know, tweaking the gears a little bit. It's going to require redesigning all the embedded incentives hmm. for how society operates. Yeah. So in your in your book, you give some great examples of people already leading the way, some more technical examples and some maybe more uh, cultural examples. I was wondering if you could share a couple of those. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there are folks in Europe who've, who've researched what level of power could we possibly sustain on a per capita basis and, okay, as we've said many times in this podcast, one way to measure physical power is with watts. Mm. So it's like, uh, how about a 2,000-watt society? It's a fraction of mm. what people are using in industrial countries like the U.S., and, and which is using about twice the power of people in European countries. Wow. But even European countries are using a lot more than 2,000 watts per capita. Okay, so what if we scaled back to 2,000 watts? What would that actually look like? Well, it turns out it would look like 1960. In 1960, we were using a fraction of the energy per capita that we are today, and yet people actually survived. They enjoyed a pretty high level of amenity and comfort. Mm. So if we aspire 
to a level of amenity that's actually sustainable. It doesn't have to be like living in caves or something like that. There are other people who are researching, what does this mean in engineering terms? Mm. There's an engineering school run by a woman named Susan Crumdeek in New Zealand, and she's written a book called Transition Engineering. And she's training whole cadres of young engineers to figure out how do we do what actually needs to be done with the minimal energy and material throughput and the least environmental impact. Wow! How many engineers get that kind of training in the world? Once you get into this stuff, there are all kinds of people who are doing amazing things and leaving trails of breadcrumbs behind so that others can can follow them to do the same thing. That's such an important takeaway is to examine the technologies that we're using. Is this the only way? Is this the best way? When you were talking about engineering, I was thinking about planned obsolescence. And I used to go to this cobbler and one time I show up and after like, I don't know, maybe they were open over a hundred years. It was like generations of cobblers. And and, uh, he was like, yeah, we're, we're shutting down. People don't use this service as much anymore. And I kind of saw it coming because I brought him boots and he was like, these are so broken and not high quality enough. It's as much for me to fix them as for you to buy a new pair. And that's true with lawnmowers. That's true with, you know, all sorts of items. So I think that's another engineering shift, but also cultural shift. And, and I was, um, I was thinking about, you mentioned Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, and he argues that meaning, the search for meaning, is the primary motivation in life. And the quote that you had is, the salvation of man is through love and in love. And so that brought me to pick up that book again and and flip through it. And I found this really interesting passage about how meaning can also be found in suffering, in facing a hopeless situation. And he gives the example of like a terminal disease. And he says, for what matters then is to bear witness to the uniquely human potential at its best, which is to transform a personal tragedy into a triumph to turn one's predicament into a human achievement. When we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. Mm. And in that way, to maintain not just blissful optimism, but to bear witness to the challenges that we are facing And some of them, we can change that situation. And some of them, I don't think we can. So we Mm -hmm. are challenged to change ourselves. So I want to look at this kind of personal perspective. And when I say personal, I don't mean as an individual. I don't mean like one person. I mean us, (laughs) you know, more collectively and communally. Um, Again, in love. Love is among us. So what can we do in our daily lives to bear witness and to challenge ourselves to change? Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing is to get our priorities straight. And, And that quote you read from Frankel is a signpost in that direction. Self-restraint is a pathway to wisdom. It's a pathway to contentment. It's a pathway to meaning. Spiritual teachers of all faiths, all generations have taught that. And we've been advertised into believing otherwise. And and that's really a self-delusion. The fact is that self-restraint is... What will guide us toward integrity, toward courage, compassion, and social solidarity? So once we get that priority straight, then there's all kinds of things we can do. I mean, you know, you could take a diversity and and inclusion training so that you can be more aware of who are the people who are more advantaged and less advantaged within your own community and what attitudes will will be helpful in, in... 
talking and negotiating and and making a collective effort toward making things better. You can research the activist groups, the nonprofits in your neck of the woods and find out which ones are doing really good work and which ones deserve your support and 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 efforts. You can also take like a primitive technology or or permaculture training to enhance your your own practical skills. All of this comes down to your daily life and and life decisions, even questions like, should I reproduce? Child-free marriages should not be stigmatized, as they often are. And this is a question my wife and I felt that we had to address early on. We ended up not reproducing, and I, I haven't regretted that choice. But on the other hand, uh, many of my friends made the other decision, and they're, they're raising children who are resilient and have their priorities straight and so on. So wonderful. Uh, they will be the leaders of the next generation. That's great. Yeah, that's been really interesting. You brought that up in the book and in my very small sample size among my my friends that I've talked about this with. Really over 50% of my friends do not plan to have children. And I think that that is a pretty major shift. My fiance and I are planning to have kids and we are the minority, which I guess is good. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's I think that's really interesting. Perhaps that is something that has changed. So let's let's talk a little bit more about community because again, we are not individuals in this. We are communal social beings. So what does a resilient community look like? in this new era that we're living in and approaching? Well, it looks more like an indigenous community, Hmm. more localized, short supply chains, uh, more direct connection with the natural world, growing more of your own food. Socially, it looks like networks where there's a lot of trust and solidarity. People cooperate to do all sorts of things together and not necessarily with rewards that can be counted, you know, monetarily as as debts or credits, but just, you know, like the sharing economy of of indigenous societies. And a resilient community has to have checks and balances that keep social power from, from getting unbalanced again. So, you know, all that's a tall order, but some people are researching how to do that within intentional communities, like eco-villages. There are hundreds of these things all over the planet now. And uh, I've lived in intentional communities myself, my wife and I, and we found the experience, it's sort of a social experiment. The experience was really valuable. Even though we don't live in an intentional community now, our closest friends in life that we've maintained over decades are people that that we lived with in community. Because, you know, when you're living in a community like that, you share a lot, Uh, not just meals and sharing resources, but life experience in a way that we can't do so much when we're in a formal kind of institution like a school or a business or something like that. Or even in a family, because a family in some ways is like a a sharing community, right? It's a sharing economy. But it's also closed in a way that an intentional community isn't. So I'm not suggesting that we should all be living in intentional communities, but it's one way of, of learning about other ways of organizing ourselves, our time, our priorities. I, I guess living in an intentional community would be more of a long-term thing, but um, I'm wondering what the the long-term vision is. How do we keep ourselves from getting into trouble over and over and over again? Yeah, I know that's that's a good question because we're such a powerful species just by our very nature. You know, the fact that we have language and, and the ability to, to create technologies and so on. I think it has to be by reorienting our priorities around beauty, spirituality, and happiness. I'm not a religious person myself, but I think living a life that's focused on essentially spiritual concerns, whether it's through the arts or martial arts or meditation or 
there are all, all kinds of things that we can do to train our brain, our senses, our muscles, and at the same time to train our attention, our emotions, our cravings, so that we are integrated with the people around us and with the natural world around us in a pattern of mutual support and appreciation. That's, uh, th that's the path toward happiness, and it's a path toward meaning, and it's also a path toward sustainability over the long run. Because if, if those are our goals, if that's, if that's our path, we're much less likely to get ourselves into the trouble of economic inequality and environmental pillage and, and pollution. I wanted to wrap up with some of the advice to young people that you have in the book. I've been referring back to that list. And so I, I just wanted to talk through a couple of those with you. Sure. The first one, learn to read people and be trustworthy. You got to read people so you know who else is trustworthy, right? right? And you want to be trustworthy because you want other people who are trustworthy to want to hang out with you, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. That seems so basic, but I think that it's really focused on integrity. And I think that that is a value that is really important and that isn't talked about too much. I know, I know. When I was growing up, that was kind of implicit here and, and there in what I was taught, but nobody ever just came right out and said it. And when you express it as, as simply as, as that, it's like, of course, that's what it's all about. That's why I should be a trustworthy person so that I get to hang out with other trustworthy people, because the, the opposite of that is no fun. <laughs> Hanging right. out with people who aren't trustworthy is, is you don't want to, no, it's, you don't want to do that. Right. So how do you do it? Well. <laughs> yeah, you become that person. Right. The, the next one that I thought was interesting that reminded me of being in school and in school, this is important. And then nobody talks about it really again as an adult to express yourself clearly and persuasively. The way you describe it is about getting other people on board with your ideas. Yeah, you know, I have a little book that's a collection of transcribed speeches hmm. by Native American leaders back in the 19th century. I think some of them even go back into the 18th century. And these are just remarkable pieces of oratory. In indigenous societies, the ability to express yourself really not just clearly, but also persuasively and honestly, and with integrity, is very highly valued. It's not that we don't value that at all, but we don't really teach ourselves and each other that in a systematic way in the modern world. I, I think that's a really important thing. Again, it's, it's part of being trustworthy and doing what's essential to be able to hang out with other trustworthy people. Absolutely. The next one was learn how energy works. And this book and this podcast has really been a, a journey of looking at energy as well, power, raw power, mm -hmm. and being able to recognize energy around you. Like, how are things running around here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, energy is very abstract, right? Right. You can't just put it in a bottle. It's what makes everything work ultimately. And so paying attention to energy doesn't mean just what's coming through the wires to make your computer work. I'm talking about what makes your body work, what makes nature work. So being able to trace the flows of energy through nature, through your food, and then obviously also through the technological built environment, all of that is really eye-opening. It gives you, again, a sense of understanding how all of this works and how you fit into it. Yeah. The last one I wanted to talk about was learn to emotionally process trauma and grief mm. and to help others do so. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about why you put that on the list? Well, first of all, because I think as a society, we've become very bad at that. And second, because I think we're, we're going to have the need 
for that skill and that ability as time goes on through this this century. Not just human trauma, but also the, the trauma of the natural world around us, the loss of so much that, that we take for granted. Yeah. And as you said earlier, we, we don't want to end on a on a totally down note, we, we want this podcast to be inspiring too. But the reality is, you know, we're, we're going to be living through some difficult times. And knowing how to process grief, knowing how to, knowing how to grieve together in community is going to be a lifesaver. You know, a, a lot of PTSD symptoms really disappear when grief is processed communally. That's why, again, indigenous societies learned how to do this. And they spent, they spent time when somebody died. Sometimes it would be days of everybody just wailing and, and, and crying together because that's what it took. But then they'd move on. Yeah. We are in a time of trying to emotionally process the pandemic. And yeah. I know a lot of people personally who are struggling with what they've been through the last few years and and don't mm-hmm. have the tools to get to the other side, you know. Yeah. I said it was the last piece of advice, but I I do think the really last piece that you put on there was um no one can do it all, but do your best. And I I think that that <laughs> Yeah, that's right. is really important too. Yeah, have realistic expectations and then put your shoulder to the wheel. That's all we can do. I wish I could have heard and, and, and taken some of this advice myself when I was younger. That's why I put this, this list together. These are the kinds of things where I could have saved myself a lot of wasted time and effort if somebody had just sat me down and, and told me a few you know, simple things about life skills. You know, my generation had basically all the information it needed. We had books like Silent Spring, Limits to Growth, Small is Beautiful. We could have tamped down consumption and population growth, but instead we threw the biggest party in all of human history, and we're leaving your generation and the ones after to clean up after and to you know hunt for the crumbs of what's left. It's incredibly unfair the least we can do is offer whatever bits of wisdom we may have accumulated and try to help any way we can. So that's that was the motivation behind this book, and I hope it's received in the, in the same spirit. I want to thank you so much, Richard, for this journey that you've taken me on and that we've shared together and are now sharing mm. with our community, and uh, thank you. Well, thank you, Melody. It's been a real pleasure working with you on this. And it's a conversation that I hope will continue in lots of ways, in lots of households. People listening to this, don't just bottle it up, talk about it. Power is essential. And I mean that in the philosophical sense. It is an essential quality of all living beings, of the chemistry and physics of the stars, and of all social dynamics. Take stock of your power. How are you wielding it? We've made it to the end, but I urge you to make this the beginning. My graduate advisor told me the way to really understand a text is to read it forward and then backward, paragraph by paragraph, and then forward again. You've listened. Now read and reread and listen again until it becomes a part of your vernacular, until the words become your own. Activate what you've learned by integrating it into your everyday life, a sliver at a time. Stack the habits that work and share what you've learned with others. Every movement begins with a handful of people deciding to do things differently. If we can change our relationship with power, we can change everything. Thank you so much for listening. No, I don't seek much power. I don't want to rule. Just want someone to sit with by the eye.
deeper dive into these ideas? Talk about them with a friend. We've put together a power reading guide to help discussion groups, teachers and students, and anyone listening or reading the book to facilitate understanding and formulate local responses to the interrelated ecological, economic, energy and equity crises we face today. This free reading guide is available at postcarbon.org power. Together, we can transition to a more resilient, equitable, and regenerative world. Are you ready to confront power? This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Melody Travers-Allison, and Rob Dietz. Richard Heinberg is our resident expert. Theme music is by Robert Labory. The Coda song was Play Me to Sleep by me, and you can find more of my music at MelodyTrebellin.com. This is a program of Post Carbon Institute. Learn more at postcarbon.org.